He was young, handsome, and he could sing. Billy J. Kramer broke into the international music scene in the 60s with an original song written by John Lennon of the Beatles. He was not releasing a cover version. This song had been given to him by the Beatles, and he actually arranged it himself. The song? It was called Do You Want to Know a Secret? And it opened young romantic hearts and had millions of fans swooning, as they said in those days. Imagine Liverpool in the 60s. The Mersey beat was in full swing and the Beatles reigned. And Billy was right there with his friends, both on and off the stage. He followed Do You Want to Know a Secret with another hit, Bad to Me, which John Lennon and Paul McCartney wrote for Billy. It was, in fact, the first Lennon-McCartney song that broke into the top 40 that was not performed by the Beatles. John Lennon was present during the recording session with Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas at the Abbey Road Studios. The single was a hit on several continents. More songs followed, including the now classic I'll Keep You Satisfied, and Billy J. grew up in the limelight. Years later, he's still going strong, and Larry O'Connor partnered with Brian Vincic to send Billy to Nashville during the pandemic. They recorded four new songs for yet another album. You know, many musicians have been out of work and revenues have been plunging. This was everyone's way to put a few people back to work. And it worked. I had a great time interviewing Billy about his career, friendships with the Beatles, their common manager Brian Epstein, producer George Martin, and his thoughts for the future. You're welcome to listen in. As Billy J puts it, he won the fight. Welcome back. It's OWC Radio. It's time for OWC Radio. Tech Talk with Creatives. Conversations with host Serena Catania. I'm so happy that you're here with us today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So this is radio and people listening can't see you, but I want to tell everybody, Billy looks great. And I have to tell you, he sounds great too. I met Billy, I mean, I met you through Brian Vincic and the folks at OWC, right? That's right. I first met Brian a few years ago in Manhattan. I was doing something with uh, kids at a school. I was writing a song and recording it with them and doing a video. And I met um, Larry and the people from OWC afterwards in a restaurant. I spoke a lot about guitars that evening. I remember that. They're very nice people. They really are. And I was very happy to know that Larry O'Connor has a very philanthropic side to him. He likes to help other people. And, you know, we're going through a lot of hard times now because of the pandemic and the lockdowns, and a lot of musicians are out of work. So tell me how this last Nashville sessions that you did, what happened there? I know OWC sponsored it for you, right? They sponsored it. It was very kind of them. To me, I mean, I, I've done a lot of things. I've worked with George Martin and a lot of people in the studio. You know, there are times where there's something magic happens. Uh, I think we captured something magic that day. I think the songs turned out really Fantastic. The musicians were unbelievable. I was spellbound with it all. It's fun, isn't it? Well, yeah, I always say, you know, there are, as I say, there are times that something magic happens and it happened that day. 
was a lot of fun, and, and I think the end, end result is, I think, frankly, it's the best thing I've ever done. Well, I have to tell you, Ronnie, your wife sent me the four songs, and I was listening to them, and I'm liking it. I'm going, wow, this is really good. We'll talk about why in a second, but I have to tell you, I got to the beginning of that fourth song, and you start out just banging it out on a really high note, and I thought, whoa, your range is incredible. I mean, it's incredible, and you still got it. You still got it. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I practice. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I take care of myself. I think it's paid off. The thing is with me, I'm, I'm self-taught. I've never had any lessons. It's like the computer. I ne- never had any lessons on anything. The guitar, I never had any lessons. It's just some, some I picked up. My wife is years ago, you've got to get into a computer. And funny enough, I got an iPad and I just started doing all sorts of things. And it's been amazing. You know, the things that I never thought with the iPad, I, I learned to do things like, you know, one time I would send like cassettes to musicians to learn songs and, you know, stuff like that. Whereas now I can make demos with GarageBand and send them to people. And it's an amazing thing. It's like the last CD I had out, I recorded it all over the place, and I had musicians from all over the world do their parts and send them to me and put it all together. You know, it's a, it's a, an amazing thing because I mean, I come from like the tape era when I worked with George Martin, and um, digital was all very new to me. You know, the thing to do is not be afraid of it. Yeah, I've only spoken to her once before, but just want to keep her. She's adorable. She is. Yeah. For people listening. Billy, and we're going to talk about all that. I'm kind of backing up. I'm starting with now and I'm moving backwards in time. But you call Ronnie your soulmate and I can see why and what she's done with and for you over the years. Everybody needs someone like that in their life, especially if you're creative and you're a performer and you're traveling. But I just want to congratulate you guys. How many years have you been married now? Something like almost 30 or? 35. We all have our ups and downs and not a lot of people that sort of stick together these days. Things get a bit off. Let's face it, you know, this pandemic thing has been terrible. And prior to it, I had an accident and I had shoulder surgery. And Ronnie was taking care of me. And it was, you know, she was washing me and drying my hair and shaving me and dressing me. You know, I was going through all that and walking around with a mask on and crazy stuff. But, you know, we, we got through it. I just hope we learned something from this. You know, I, I feel really bad for, for musicians. You know, people don't realize the hardships musicians go through. They see, you know, people on TV and they, they think they're, they're making millions of dollars and have a great life. It's the hardest business in the world. You got to be crazy and in love with it to do it. I've been lucky, but I've also had good times and bad times something that I'd love to do. You've worked incredibly hard. I don't think I did in the beginning for this. I think I took a lot of things for granted. As time went by, I I started to put more effort in and taking it seriously, which I didn't before. But you have to work hard at it. And you have to love it. It's what I like to do. You know, people talk to me about it and I just say, it's what I love to do. I don't consider I've ever had a job. It's not a job. It's just something I love to do. You know, and to get in a studio with great talented people, to me, is better than taking drugs. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So the four songs that you just recorded that OWC sponsored in Nashville, I don't have the names of them. Have you named them yet? Who wrote them? They were written by two brothers, Billy and Bobby Alessi. It's a strange thing because Billy Alessi contacted me some time ago, and I didn't know him at all. My wife knew him because he, he played in the band on Long Island, and he was very successful. Him and his brother, they went out as the Alessi brothers, and then they went into the jingle business and worked with people like Whitney Houston and Barbara Streisand, and they're very talented people, and I, I didn't know any of this. And Billy thought that I still lived in England, and we only lived like 15, 20 minutes away from each other. And we got together, and we sat in this restaurant, and he gave me a CD, and he says, there's a song on here, and I think that would be a really good song for you to do. And I took the CD home and I played it. Next time I met him, I said, you know, I hate to tell you, but I think you're wrong. I think there's another song that is better that we can do a great job on, which was called Top of the World. And he said, well, let's go for it. And we recorded it on Top of the World and it just it all went for me. It turned out great. And then um, his brother called me up and said, I've written a song for you. It's a song called I Belong. And then they came up with a song, The Best Part of Me Is You, low country ballad type thing. And the other one was uh, Change Your World. I have some other songs there that I'm hopefully going to record soon. And the whole thing, is it just came together. You know, I've never had something like that come together so easily and, and so great. You know, they're just a pleasure to work with. And they're very talented. So you had some great session musicians with you in Nashville. Yes. Do you want to talk about who they were? For a long time, I've known Tom Hambridge, who produces Buddy Guy. And Tom's a lovely guy. And we've spoken for years and gone back and forth and back and forth about material. And when everything just got quiet, because Tom's a very sought-after guy, I said, you know, Tom, I I think I, I might have something special. And I sent it to him, and he, he just went, Willie, we got to do this. So it was a time where, I'll be honest with you, so guys were out of work, musicians, and, and they pulled them in, and they just did a fantastic job there. And uh, the whole guys in the studio were great. They were really great. You went into the studio in Nashville. You recorded these four numbers. But prior to that, you had released an album in, I think it was 2014. Yes. There's some wonderful songs on that album. You did an album. What was it called? It was called I Won the Fight. I Won the Fight. That's right. It's funny. I was in Santa Fe with my wife and a neighbor of ours said, you're never around to see a sunset. You always come and go so quickly. And I came back to New York and I said to Ronnie, I want to buy a new guitar. And she said, I bought you one 25 years ago. You haven't touched it. And that's the truth. I was so intimidated by great guitar players I'd seen over the years. So I didn't. And, and I said to her, you know, I didn't like to tell you, Ronnie, but it wasn't a good guitar. So I went out and I bought a new guitar. And I had this thing about, you know, I thought Brian Epstein, he was left out in the cold. And I thought he discovered the most successful band ever in the world. And a lot of other people, and he managed me. And there was nothing about him, and I came up with the song Liverpool with Love. I wrote Liverpool with Love and Sunsets to Santa Fe. 
And Liverpool was a lot better around a lot of the different Beatles circles. And after that, Brian got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which, which is great, you know. And, you know, I wasn't intending to even make a CD. It was just a couple of songs that I called a friend and said, you know, I've got these songs and I want to do the vocals. And, and I went to the place and did them. And then there were songs that, that I had in mind for years. Hey, let's do it. And then I was in the house and I went, you know, well, I've got like 10 songs and I need something to pull them all together. And I came up with the song, I Won the Fight. And I thought, you know, I've been in the worst business in the world for so many years. <laughs> and, and I'm so pretty in tech, so I guess I did win the fight. You and Frank Sinatra, who did it his way. Oh, <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> you both won your fights. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's maybe that fight was a bit too much to say that. It was one of those songs that just came, I wrote it right off the bat. There's a line in a song from that album. The song is called You Can't Live in Memories. Yes. And the line that hit me was still on the road and maybe there's more. Because I think with you, Billy, there have been periods in your time when you've gone away from the business for short periods of time, but your God-given gift, right? Your gift keeps pulling you back in. And I thought that's Billy J. Kramer right there, still on the road. And there's more. Always felt that I've been sort of like on the outskirts. I've never been pushy. I was very shy when I started and very nervous and always kept myself to myself. And, you know, I never got in trouble and I wasn't a bad boy. I don't know what people did think of me. And it used to bother me. And then I got to a point that I, it was like, what you see is what you get. Things come along. and It's like when I narrated books for Sandra Boynt. And it was like, I'd never thought of doing that. That started where I got this letter from, from Sandra and I'd never heard of her. And I said to her, you know, this person, there was a logo on the letter. And I went, yeah, I've seen that someone before. I didn't, I didn't realize she's the most successful children's author in the world. And she said, I got this song that was called Cow Planet. And I went into Sunny Studios in, in Manhattan and rattled it off. I said to her, I've got to do this. I don't care about the money. It's got to be fun. And then she called me shortly afterwards and went, you know, I like the way you talk. And I went, well, you know, I'm always being accused of mumbling by my wife. She said, I like the way you talk, and I'm going to do some of my kids' app books into apps, and I'd like you to narrate them. I ended up finding off in Barnes & Noble in Manhattan, and she'd had the book enlarged, and everybody in the audience was in pajamas. And I walked on the stage in pajamas and read the book. Maybe people say I'm crazy, but I... I thought it was a lot of fun, yeah. And also very important, I think children need mentors and they need to feel like they can indulge their creativity. And you do have a beautiful voice, singing and speaking. So let's go all the way back yes. and talk about Little Billy in the UK. What was life like for you growing up? A little Billy, I could talk about it. You could say, oh, the poor guy, you know, because we didn't have much. It, was a, it wasn't long after World War II, you know, and when I tell people like that, there was the, this uh, corrugated iron bombshells in the backyard. I was a baby and my parents took seven of us into shelter at night with a candle. I was on baby, I didn't feel that. I remember sort of like holding my mother's hand and standing on the, on the sidewalk and people going, it's VE day, it's VE day. And I was like, this little kids are just 
felt like it just come alive. We didn't have a lot. We never had a phone. We never went on vacation. We didn't have a car. But it didn't bother me. You know, I, I mean, I used to go to the beach with my brother and play soccer. And we'd play cricket in the summer and stuff like that. It's a life in you, you know. You don't realize when you're in that sort of situation. And everything was scarce. Quite frankly, I was never hungry. My parents loved me. And my mother was great with me. My dad was tough with me. If I stepped out of line, he let me know it. It's funny because a guy, Mr. Berg, ran around the classroom. We were all singing one day. He went, you're in the choir, you're in the choir. And he said, you're in the choir, William. So when we started rehearsing, he, he said, you know, you sing really well and you should sing solo. And I would never sing solo. I was always so self-conscious. And we used to go off and do these choral festivals at different places. And some of them our parents had come to. And it was always, oh, you got robbed. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. That's when I was very young. And then I went to a school course in Georgia, England, and there was no music thing there. The only thing, the Liverpool Philharmonic used to come there like once a year. And I was like fascinated by this big orchestra on the stage playing these Peter and the Wolf and all these classics. And, and I was always walking around singing. And I never ever thought of like forging a career from me. I still don't know what I want to do, you know. What am I going to be when I grow up? Yeah. <laughs> and it was like the skiffle era came in, in the UK. People don't realize it, but suddenly, you know, the UK is not known for guitars, but a guy called Lonnie Donegan started coming up with these like skiffle records. A lot of people didn't realize that. He'd got it from American artists from way back. And suddenly, like, there's 25,000 acoustic guitars get sold. In England, like, kids were playing skiffle. You know, and I got this cheap guitar and I sat on the staircase at home and drove my parents crazy. It's funny because I, I, even today I don't read music. I don't write, you know. But you play by ear. I would go to school and, and I would take the guitar to school and play anything. And, they, you know, the teacher was amazed that I could, like, transpose it without writing anything down. And I felt like everybody, you know, was like, wow, that's cool. To me, it was just like insects on the paper. Hopping around. That was it. When I left school, I worked on the railroad and I would get with friends and we would play in each other's houses. We all lived in uh, two streets, right? The bass player lived 10 feet away from me. The drummer lived down the bottom of the street and the other guitar player. And we got together and we played acoustic guitars. And then one guy called Tony Sanders decided I'll play drums. And he bought drums and he got very good. And Ray Doherty got very good. And this guy, George Braithwaite, we're just school friends. We live in the same couple of streets. And we, I felt we needed a better guitar player. And I asked my cousin, would he join the band? He says, well, I'll come and help you till you get somebody. But he ended up... He <laughs> forgot about religion. <laughs> he forgot about and got into rock and roll. And we started like playing in this little Legion Hall. What city were you in then? Liverpool. You were actually in Liverpool because you started out in another place, right? Bootle is in Liverpool. Bootle is a uh, suburb. They came up to us and said, you know, you burn all this electricity every night practicing here. So you got to do a show for us. And we did this show on the Saturday night and we got a pint of beer each. And that was what we had to do. And gradually, it was, a line started forming outside the place. 
And instead of sort of old guys playing dominoes and snooker, you know, we built a farming and uh, kind of thrilling. <laughs> and then um, we decided we got we got to break out of here. And what happened was um, the guys in the band said, "Your guitar playing's not progressing. You got to get singing a shot." And I really didn't want to do it. And I said, "I'll give it a shot." And I thought it would be a novelty, and it'd go back to everybody singing. And we did this show at a, a conservative club, and I borrowed the money from my brother to buy this guitar, and he, he um, you know, he gave me the money, and the guitar was stolen. It was the first set I had the guitar on the stand on the stage, and had a few drinks and forgot all about the guitar. That was it. I, I admit I had no intention of doing what I did, you know, so I couldn't afford another, and um, I was stuck with singing. So first we decided we'd do this audition at a place called Ink Tree Institute, and they used to put new bands on early, and then they'd have a, somebody established later. We threw all the, all the equipment on the bus, you know, they have these double-decker buses in. And the bus drivers loved you for that, right? Oh, it went great. It went crazy. <laughs> we did this audition at the Entry Institute, and that was the first time I met the Beatles because they were playing later on. I was going to ask you to tell people when you met the Beatles because that actually, that was a very important moment in your life, right? I never realized at the time, you know, at first, they were cool, you know, and I spoke with them and, I'd never seen a Rickenbacker guitar before, and I, John Lennon kind of let me play it. And I got six bookings that night. It went well. It was an audition kind of thing. And I got six bookings, and things just kept adding to it. We did the Cavern and the Iron Door and Atrium Institute and Blair Hall, and all these gigs around. And I was, like, playing six nights a week. You know, and at this point, you are the lead singer of the group. You're singing all the time. Yeah. And I was going to be an engineer, but I don't think I would have qualified. <laughs> <laughs> I should have been going to night school and day school and stuff like that. And I was, wasn't doing it. You know, I, I was too into rock and roll. And then it, it came to a point where there was a, a, a poll in a local newspaper. There was a popularity poll. And... Um, we came second. The Beatles came first. I came second. The guy, Lee Curtis, came third. And they had this, like, presentation. And everybody had to do a few songs. And then I heard the Beatles doing Please, Please Me. And I was like, wow. And Brian Epstein was giving a tour of Scotland away. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't take it. I worked short in the day and I, I can't do it. And we didn't do it. It were crazy times, you know. So it's like I remember sort of like playing the cavern with the Beatles, and then all the guys went, Should we go to London? <laughs> <laughs> and we just why not? We went to London and drove around, looked at the sites, and went, Well, what's all the fuss about, really? And we went back to Liverpool, <laughs> you know, great, crazy kids. Tell us how you ended up doing your first big hit, Do You Want to Know a Secret, which is actually the name of your autobiography. What happened was I was given the notice to go to a place called Crew, and I was going to pack the whole thing in. And then Brian Epstein came along, offered me a five-year contract. I'd done a lot of shows with the Beatles, and I got on very well with them. Um, I signed with Brian's company, 
And he gave me this tape, and it was John Lennon singing, do you want to know a secret? And he says, you know, uh, we're going to go f- try and get a record deal and we've got to have something original. So I learned it with the Dakotas. I, d- I just joined them. I left the, the guys. That was one thing that I was very sad about, that I had to leave my school friends and local kids because they didn't want to be professional. A group called the Coasters, you know, we'd gone through all this, getting where we'd gotten, and they didn't want to do it. So Brian bought me with the Dakotas and I learned the song, You Are No Secret. We went off to Hamburg and came back from Hamburg. And the next thing we we did, like, recording tests with different labels. And then I did a test with George Martin, which I, I didn't think I was that good that day. But anyway, the next thing I got a phone call and he says, we want to release Do You Want to Know a Secret? And I was like, really? I never thought it was going to be anything special. I remember going to London and I was at the information bureau. This woman kindly wrote me the directions to Abbey Road Studios. And I finished the record and there was bits and pieces I had to do. And on, on the way back, she was still there. And I said, do you have a good day? I went, it was all right. I said, you know, I'm not that thrilled with it. Maybe your kids will be. And I gave her the demo, what's called an acetate that they give me of Geronimo's secret. And, you know, I never thought anything about it. You know, and then um, I was at home and Brian actually called me up. He said, can you come in? Can you come to the office? And I went to the office and John Lennon was there. And he said, you know, Billy, I've been thinking about it. Billy Kramer is like just too ordinary. You know, why don't you call yourself Billy J. Kramer? It'll give it some zest to it and it'll be more rock and rolly. And I said, well, that's a great idea. And I thanked him, you know. And Do You Want a Secret came out and I did this TV show called Cena 630 in Manchester. And I was like throwing secret files around the studio and pushing cabinets over. And because at the time there was a political scandal, the Profumo trials, with all these politicians uh, after being naughty boys. <laughs> yeah. And I go home and there's like 500,000 kids outside the house. And my parents get the police in and it was a bit scary, you know. I never expected anything like that, you know. I always say to Ronnie, I said, you know, this blue collar kid and you're self-conscious and you're overweight and then suddenly people are screaming at you <laughs> and saying you're good looking. How did you become good looking overnight? That's why I, I always felt about it. Well, I think that music is so important in people's lives, and you have an amazing voice, and you really do have a good stage presence. You worked yourself into that over the years. It's amazing to watch. I've always been into vinyl. People are getting back into vinyl. And Do You Want to Know a Secret is on this album with the Dakotas. Billy, there's so much we can talk about. So you did Do You Want to Know a Secret. And then what happened after that? I mean, you're huge. You've got your houses being stormed by the fans everywhere you go. I mean, they literally at one point ripped your clothes off of you, right? I went on tour with the Beatles. And they were doing a week in every town in England. So it was even crazier every night, every day. And we couldn't get in a place, couldn't get out of places. Once you got on the theater, it was mad again. Now the hotels, that was just, it was a crazy 
And while I was doing that, John Lennon said to me, it was my 20th birthday, and he said, I've got a song for you. And I said, play it. And he, was, he said, I'll come to Abbey Road the next time you're there. And I didn't think he was going to show up, but he did. And he sat at the piano and he played me, Bad to Me. And I thanked him, you know, I thought it was a great song. And then he said, I want to play you something. Be honest with me. Tell me what you think of it. And he played, I want to hold your hand. <laughs> can I have that, please? <laughs> nope, you can't have it. <laughs> I said, can I have that? He said, no, we're doing that ourselves. Then I recorded Bad to Me. That was another big one. People say to me, how come you recorded more than the McCartney songs than anybody else? I said, well, maybe they like me. That's right. You were friends and you were good at it. That was in the Mersey Beat era, right? Can can we talk for a minute about the what has happened in the music world since you were 20 years old and the Mersey Beat and then how it all sort of morphed into where we are today? Things have really changed. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Absolutely. I was talking to some young students at the same time when I was in Nashville. We started off with like poor equipment, terrible equipment, and became okay on it. Eventually went on to better equipment. And technology wasn't like it is today. Let's face it, no comparison. But, you know, we, we got proficient at what we did. And as time went by, things got better and better. When I went to, apart from like the bad to me thing, some young kids said to me the other day, he's starting out and he says, what do you do, Billy? I says, I learn everything. He says, well, what do you do about lyrics? I said, well, I write them in a book and then I check them out. And if they're not right, I rip it up and start again. So I know it. And when I go on a studio, I know what I'm doing. And today people go on a studio and they create a loop of a certain chord and then they think, we'll write a hit song. And I always remind kids, the Beatles didn't do that. And nobody did. I think they think technology is going to write them a hit song. And I don't want to get into the rap thing, because that's a, another thing altogether. I see kids where the parents go out and buy them best equipment, and they ask me, what do you think, Billy? And sometimes I feel like, that. well, you're going to need a job soon, son. You, know? you have to work at it. Technology is not going to give you it. Technology is a wonderful thing. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I was frightened of like when I did I Want the Fight. It was the first time I worked digitally. You know, I'd always done things with tape. And I tell people this, we can make better records. We have the technology to make better records, better sounding, better everything. I always say to people, it's all about the song. Bed to me was a hit, not because of technology it was a good song little children was a hit because it was a good song and it was played well and recorded well and you can do a lot of great things with the technology we have we can make the drums better the bass better we can tweak the vocals with the auto tune i kind of smile about that when i recorded i won the fight i did the vocals in 10 hours that was one hour per song and and no order to nothing. But I would use it if I had to. When I see people using it in live situations, it's a bit of a con, isn't it? I think if you're an entertainer, you should get up there and do it. Let's face it, I walked on the stage and presented myself. I didn't have flashing lights and 20 girls dancing around. And the Beatles didn't. To me, it's like presenting yourself. People go like, how did you manage when you didn't have monitors? 
we played to the room. We knew light and shade. But I don't think a lot of people consider things like that now. You know, you talk about having the right song, but I think you did something else in addition with I Won the Fight, and that is you really opened your heart with those lyrics. That's the story of your life in there. That's your heart. You really opened everything up and said, this is who I am and brought people into that because people can resonate with that. I think audiences can tell when you're wearing a mask and I don't mean the pandemic mask. I mean, if you're hiding who you really are, I think people can read into that. Human beings can feel that. And you just have a way of sharing who you are. And I think that comes with experience that comes with living for a while and being comfortable with who you are, right? Yes, it's great to be comfortable. I always say that, you know, because when I was younger, I wasn't comfortable. I was very shy and people never talked about things like that. I couldn't say to my father, you know, I feel uncomfortable there. He just said, what's the matter with you? Get over it. I've been watching Prince Harry talking about it, which I think is a great thing. The fact that he can talk about being uncomfortable and, and not being afraid. I think that's a lot of kids get into trouble because of that. You've kept it all to yourself and it's no good. And it's like fear's a terrible thing. Fear is so destructive. And you never think about that when you're young. That fear can stop you doing great things. You know, I, I had some quiet years and years where things weren't great. And a lot of that was really, I think, was my own, my own doing. You know, I wasn't doing what I had the capability of doing, you know. You were traveling around a lot. Do you want to talk about your struggle with alcoholism in the early days and how you got through all of that? You know, that's a big problem right now, the lockdowns and COVID. It's a problem and people are trying to overcome that. So if you don't mind talking about it, I think you might be kind of inspirational to people because you have come out the other end. Alcoholism is, to me, is a terrible thing. It robs people of everything. It robs them of homes and families, and jobs, and everything. And it robs them of so much. To me, it tears people apart, and it puts them on the floor. It's just an insidious disease. They say it's a self-diagnostic disease. Yes, it is. It's very difficult to, to go to somebody and say, you know, I have a problem, I drink too much. I just thought, I'm a young guy, I'm under a lot of pressure, and... When things quiet down in my life, I'll stop. But I would never have stopped. And I'll be honest with you, you know, when I think of my behavior, what it did to me as a person, I'm very lucky. I have so much gratitude that the switch flicked and I was so lucky. A lot of people don't get that. And I see people all over the place dying and, and times like what's been going on. I'm amazed that I can sort of like, cope without having to have a drink. I mean, isn't it terrible when you wake up every day and go, i got to get on stage tonight, i got to start drinking. And you lie and you, you don't do the right thing. I feel very blessed. I really do. They say you have to hit bottom. You literally have to hit bottom and then you have to decide that you have to do something about it, right? I had this period where I was doing nothing and I sat at home and just drank. I always said, if I wake up in the morning and start drinking, 
and I've got a problem. But I was drinking 24 hours a day and not thinking. <laughs> you know, it was bad. And, you know, it was always, oh, I only drink wine, I only drink this, I only drink beer. And I found that I was like drinking Jack Daniels and Coca-Cola to have a shower in the morning, you know. And I'll be very honest with you, I'm not a religious man, but I got on my hands and knees and I said, I can't do this anymore. God, I need help. I wasn't married to Ronnie at the time, and I, she was out somewhere, she came home. I said, you know, I've got a problem. I'd like to talk to you about it. And she says, what is it? I said, I think I'm an alcoholic. And she said, I knew that the day I met you. But she said, I'll do all I can to help you. And she supported me, and I went off and I got involved with AA. It was really tough. And for a whole year, I just did nothing but go to AA meetings. I went to a psychiatrist. This is earlier before this. I went to this psychiatrist again, whatever. And he said to me, you know, you can come see me every week and pay me, but you don't need to. You're an alcoholic. And nobody had ever said that to me. People have said, you drink too much. I would get in trouble and I would do bad shows and people would complain. And then I'd sober up for a while. But I always went back to craziness, I say, you know, and I started going to AA. And it's 35 years this month on the 28th of June. I haven't had a drink since. Congratulations. I've not been in any trouble. I think I'm a better person. I'm not the same person as when I were when I first went to AA. Don't you think you can enjoy life more when you're just being yourself? I mean, I think alcohol dulls all of that, doesn't it? It robs you of everything. Robs you of everything. And to me, it was like, it was difficult at first to get over like the physical addiction. When I did, it's been like unbelievable things. I could say things that have happened and people wouldn't believe me. You know, let's face it. I get people like, OWC coming along saying, we'll do this for you. You know, people didn't do that. People didn't say, we're going to give you some help, clearly. Nobody came on it. I had a situation where like, I could just call one day, and I don't usually call, but I'd call this person up, and this girl said, oh, Mr. Sons was in the meeting, he call you back. And he called me back, and I said, what can I do for you? He said, well, my wife and I were in in college together, and we were madly in love. We wanted to get married. Everybody was going crazy and opposed to it. We ran off to another state, and we got married. And we're going to be married 50 years, such and such a day. Our favorite song was Bad to Me. I'd like you to come and sing it for us. And he paid for me and my parents fly to California. He never told his wife. and. The band were playing on stage, and he walked up and he says, have you learned that song I asked you to learn? And they said, we didn't have the time. And they just went into the song, and I walked out. <laughs> You're making me cry. <laughs> but, you know, things like that didn't happen. Sandra Boynton didn't call me up to come and read it. stories. You got yourself healthy again. You met a woman that you call your soulmate who has been with you for many years, because alcohol did ruin your 
all your other relationships and wreak havoc with your life. But you have done some amazing things and you're not done yet. I mean, I think these new songs are going to be great. I think, like you said, I'm still on the road and there is more. There is more. How many number one hits have you had over the years? Yeah, half a dozen. I could have had more. You know, I reached a stage, I'll be very honest with you, where there's one thing I can say. I did learn McCartney songs when I started, but they weren't cover versions. They played me those songs, I arranged the songs, and I did them in the way I did them. When the Beatles took off, and people may have got an advanced copy or something, and it, it put me off. You know, I got to a point where when little children came along, people said to me, Brian Epstein said, you're insulting the guys. I went, no, this is a good song. And I thought, I've got to find my own road. And I loved the Beatles and what they did for me and everything. But I just said, you know, I've got to find my own road. We've all got journeys and it's time for me to find my way. I was speaking to Paul McCartney and I said, I need a song, Paul. And he says, I just bought the Buddy Holly catalog. I said, I can't do a Buddy Holly song. He went, why? I said, how can you make a better version of That'll Be The Day or Peggy Sue? They were all part of my teenage years. Later people like Linda Ronstadt and that didn't. I've always been like the certain songs, like just don't go there. I think that was smart. That was courageous. You talk about you had a lot of fear, but I think that was very courageous. That was believing in yourself. If there's something that you could do that you haven't done yet, what would that be? Do you have a bucket list? You know, I'd love to go back to Abbey Road. That's one thing. What would you do there? What do you want to do at Abbey Road? I'll tell you. I was recording a song at Abbey Road one day and John Lennon and Paul came in and they said, we've got a great song for you. And at the time, you know, you couldn't stay in the studio forever. You were studio time, very precious. And we laid a track down very quickly in 20 minutes and it wasn't that good, I didn't think anyway. And we thought, well, we'd go back to it. We never went back to it. And years later, on a box set, EMI, because of technology, could edit it. And there's like John Lennon talking on it and all that kind of thing and shouting things at me. They left a lot of stuff off. And I've always had this feeling that I'd, I'd like to go back and finish it. Tell people what song that was. No. <laughs> Aha. Okay. No, I will. <laughs> it's a song called I'm in Love. And when I listen to it now, I think to myself, I should have got it together because it would have been a hit. Maybe it'll still be a hit. I don't know, but it's just something I'd like to do that. And, you know, I have this thing about people going about the 60s. And to me, I think, yeah, the 60s were great, but it's not my whole life. And I keep getting asked to these tours, and I think, do I want to go and sing offices and songs I did 50 years ago? And the answer is no. And I turn things like that down. I'll always sing the songs that were successful. It's your duty to the public. It's like I remember talking to George Harrison about it. And I said, you know, I get fed up of singing. Do you want to know a secret? And he went, you know you'll have to sing that for the rest of your life. And I know this. Well, you kind of (laughs) do. I don't agree with some people who won't do what they did years ago. I think you owe it to your public. And, And I'll always do them. But. You know, I'd like to do a show where there was that, plus 
things I've done down the road that they may not have even known about. How do you describe your voice? It had this very clear, almost, I don't want to say angelic because you're a man, but it was a very amazing voice. It still is. But I think over the years, your voice has really matured. You talked in your book about being able to relax when you sing, right? Just being able to, to relax. And I could really feel that when I was listening to the new songs. And you talk about your best key is the key of D. You don't really talk about your range. How big is your range? I've never thought about it. At least two octaves. You have a huge range because you're amazing in the low notes and you've got almost that country thing going once in a while, right? Sure. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I like country. And I've talked to someone recently who's done a book on country music around Liverpool, influenced a lot of people. I say nobody ever mentions that just down the road from Liverpool, there was a American Air Force Base, and they used to play all the country music at their own station. And I, I used to sing like Hank Williams songs and Brett Pierce songs, and my mother would go, it's so depressing. <laughs> but to me, do you know something? It's good sometimes, but melancholy is kind of a, a place to go. Not many people go there. I, I do from time to time. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't know if I said it to you before we started recording or during this interview, but when I got to that fourth song and you start out on that high note, I went, I really literally almost fell off my chair. I went, whoa, that's pretty awesome. So you, you do have an incredible gift. Somebody said to me, have you thought maybe you should do that in a lower register? And I went, I tried it. It didn't work. Billy, I'm so glad that we were able to meet and um, give my regards to Ronnie, your soulmate. She's a wonderful woman. I think every man needs a woman like that in their life. And you've had incredible successes and you've come through some hard times. And I think that, wow, you really do have a lot ahead of you. I really do wish you the best with everything new that you're doing. Was there anything I didn't ask you about that you want to talk about before we go? I always felt like in the 60s, you know, I don't know why, but I, I didn't do a lot of interviews, TV things. You know, I feel like I'd like to get to know, but I don't think people ever really got to know me, what kind of guy I was. I'd like them to. I remember sort of Brian Epstein saying to me, you know, I think you should go and have elocution lessons. And I went, you know, Brian, if people can't accept me the way I am, it's tough. I said, did you ask the Beatles too? (laughs) Well, Billy, I just really appreciate your time. And it's fun talking to you. (laughs) Thank you. You know, and it's been a good thing that being able to do what I've done recently for musicians. It's it's a very hard business. And a lot of them have gone through a really tough time. And I can't thank Larry at OWC and everybody for the kindness and the belief in what I've wanted to do. Larry O'Connor and everyone over there at OWC are amazing people. And actually, this is a good moment for me to thank them for sponsoring this show, because if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be talking to you today. And I want to say thank you to Brian Vincic for introducing us as well. And I hope we talk again. And if you go to Abbey Road, which I think you will, if you go to Abbey Road, I want to be there. I'll fly to London and I'll take some pictures and and be a fly on the wall. (laughs) That would be great. Thank you. You have a wonderful day. And 
He is Billy J. Kramer. I'm Serena Catania. You are listening to OWC Radio, and I am signing off. Remember what I tell you guys every time. Get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. Even if it's in your own home, go do something wonderful. Thank you.